Amen. If you have a Bible, open with me to the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians, the fifth chapter of that epistle, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 7 through 12. Galatians 5, verses 7 through 12, and the title of the sermon today is Keep Running Well. Keep Running Well. We hear that exhortation in this text that we must continue and keep running on our path. Now, you will recall in this epistle, Paul's moved into his final section of writing. He has addressed the Judaizers' attack on his ministry in the first two chapters, and he has also addressed their attack against sound doctrine in chapters 3 and 4. And now in chapters 5 and 6, he's addressing the Judaizers' attack on the outworking of genuine salvation. He's addressing that attack by exhorting the Galatians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, to live in such a way that is holy and blameless before the Lord. So with that, let's read our text, and then we need to ask the Lord's help in our time of study, and then we will dive in to Galatians chapter 5. So let's read Galatians 5, beginning at verse 7, and this is the holy and inspired word of God. Paul writes, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision... Why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you and we would ask you that you would add your blessing to the reading and the preaching of your word. Lord, please increase our capacity to listen, to understand, and to apply the truth. Lord, for the the transfer of your word from the pages of Scripture through the mouth of the preacher and to the ears and the hearts of the hearers, Lord, that transmission is only a miracle that can be accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask you, I plead with you, I beg you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come and empower us today to receive and to apply the truth. Lord, there are so many things that go on in our week from Monday morning to Saturday night. I ask you, Lord, to help us to put those things away to give the devoted attention of our hearts and our minds over this next hour to the truth of your word. Lord, help us to continue in a spirit of worship, for that is what we gather to do each and every week, is to worship you, the great, glorious, and holy God. And Lord, may we even now worship you through the preaching and the reception of your truth. Lord, as we 
studied earlier this morning about the destructive nature of pride. Can't help but come before you and ask you and beg you to give us humble hearts. Lord, may we take heed lest we would fall. Lord, how thankful we are that we have a great high priest who has entered into the veil, who has offered sacrifice once and for all to cleanse us and to purge us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. How grateful are we, Lord, that that same high priest knows our weaknesses. He was tempted and tried as we were, as we are, yet he was without sin. Lord, may we consider the glory of our Savior and may we come before you now with humble hearts, desiring to be cleansed and purged and purified by your word. Lord, again, this is a work that only you can accomplish by the gracious and powerful working of your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, would you come, would you strengthen us, and Lord, would you be glorified in and among us today. We pray that all we do would make much of Christ, and I pray in his name, amen. So once more, as we um, consider these verses before us today, we must consider the broader context of, of what Paul is writing. He is writing to exhort the Galatians to continue on, as the title says, to keep running well, to remain firm in their faith despite the attacks of the Judaizers. The attempts to destroy the Galatians' faith by these Judaizers have been many They've been varied, and they've been multifaceted. They've come to try to lead these people away from genuine faith. And that is always the desire of Satan. That is always the desire of false teachers and false Christians to come alongside of Christians and to pull them away from the faith. Paul knows that. Paul is exposing that, and Paul is exhorting the Galatians to continue on. He is instructing them as to what the Spirit-filled life looks like. For that's really what Galatians 5 is probably most known for, is the Spirit-filled life, the fruit of the Spirit. And as we consider these verses, we're still looking at that context of how to live the Spirit-filled life. But we're doing it today from the standpoint of looking at false teachers, knowing how to expose them, how to resist them, and how to stand firm in the truth. So while we hear that there is warning in this text, there is great and grave warning, we must also see that there is clear exhortation and clear encouragement from the Apostle Paul. He warns them that these false believers, these false teachers will seek to draw them away from the faith, that they will seek to put obstacles in front of them and to persuade them away from the truth. But Paul says, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will not adopt another view. I have confidence that you will stand firm. That is great encouragement. We'll look at that later. He exhorts them to keep running well. He says, you were running well, so what drew you away from the truth? So while there is great warning, and that's really the focus of this text, alongside of that warning, there's encouragement and there's exhortation. And so, as we study this, we must keep that exhortation at the forefront of our minds. That is kind of the main thesis of this message. We want to look at the warnings, we want to understand the warnings, but we don't live a life of fear. 
So the main thesis here is that we must keep running well by pressing on after Christ. We keep running well by pressing on toward Christ, by rejecting those who would hinder you, who would try to persuade you away from the truth. And we keep pressing on toward Christ by keeping the, the bride of Christ, the church, pure. So that is our aim today. We, we want to look at these warnings, but we ultimately want to see the exhortation to run with perseverance to fix our eyes upon Christ. So it's kind of these parallel paths that we're taking because we can't make it through this text without considering these warnings. But as we consider them, let's consider how we can keep running well. So verses 7 through 9 will make up our first point. The first point is the nature of false teachers. You could say the nature, the goal, the work, or the purpose of false teachers. There Paul writes, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. So Paul begins with a metaphor that is common to scripture, the metaphor of a race. He says, you were running well. The Christian life is often described as a race, a race that is a marathon, not a sprint, where we must Run, we must keep pace through the course of our lives as we are striving and running after the ultimate goal to win the prize of a servant who is good and faithful. A servant to whom the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter the joy of your master. The Christian life is a race. And the Galatians were running well, Paul says. They were running well, but something, or rather more clearly someone, has come in and set them off course. And so there's something important to consider here. The Galatians, yes, they were new believers. The the church had not been formed long. These people were not deep into their Christian walks, but they had been set on a firm foundation. The apostle Paul had come and instructed them well. They were running well. They were giving good evidence of salvation. But then the Judaizers came in with their false teaching and set them off course. And what's important to understand there is that false teachers and Satan himself is no respecter of persons. You may be an infant in Christ. You may be new to the faith or you may have walked with the Lord for 60 years. And either way, I can assure you from the authority of Scripture that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to destroy you seeking to eat you as his prey to ruin and destroy your faith. So this means that no one from the the newest of Christians to the most seasoned of believers, no one is exempt from this type of attack. Dear friends, we must all stand firm. We must all stand on guard. We must be on the alert We all must be sober-minded, looking to the attacks that will come from the enemy. So that's where Paul begins. You were running well. You had a faithful beginning, but then Paul asks this, I think, incredibly difficult question for someone who loves these people so dearly to have to ask. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And this question, I think, makes very clear that there was evidence in the Galatians that they were swerving off the path. 
They were veering off the course. They were running well. They had been running well, but now maybe not so much. Now they were being hindered. To be hindered speaks of someone coming in and putting an obstacle, someone impeding another person's way by placing an obstacle directly on the path. Now again, this running metaphor of the Christian life becomes even more clear when we consider what happened there. They came and put an obstacle in the road. The Galatians were running, but the Judaizers brought in an impediment. They brought in the obstacle of the law, specifically the obstacle of circumcision, and they did that to slow down the progress in godliness and in sanctification of the Galatian church. The Galatians had been obeying the truth. They were persuaded of the truth of justification by faith alone. Paul had obviously taught them that because he expected them to be able to stand firm against these lies of the Judaizers. They had accepted that. They had submitted themselves to the idea that with faith comes genuine obedience. Obedience is a result and an outworking of true saving faith. But these Jews came in, they placed a blockade in the road, they placed a detour sign in front of the Galatians that pointed them over to to turn to the right or to turn to the left, and the Galatians were following that detour sign. The problem is they were on the straight and narrow path. They were on the road that the Lord had appointed them to be on. They were walking after and pursuing Christ, but the Judaizers came and put a hindrance. They put a blockade. We've all seen, I think, road blockades this week, either in person or in pictures online, to tell you, no, don't go down this path. This is a dangerous path. That's what the Judaizers did to the Galatians. The problem is, is the Galatians were on the right path. You think about this this idea of a race. You think about a marathon runner or or a sprinter. It works either case. You think if you have someone out running a marathon where they're going to run, laps around a field for an hour, which sounds horrifically boring and and painful to me, but they were going to run a marathon. And you think about somebody, they're they're halfway into that marathon, their body's giving way, they're tired, they're exhausted. They come to make their next lap, and all of a sudden there's hurdles. If you've watched watched the, the Olympic hurdles, you know these people are not marathon runners. They're really not even sprinters. They're this unique brand of people who are able to run a top speed while also jumping over these three feet high hurdles. And that's what the Judaizers did to the Galatians. They were running a good and proper race, and they came and set hurdles and obstacles and hindrances in front of them. Matthew Henry wrote of this, the Christian, the life of a Christian is a race wherein he must run and hold on if he would obtain the prize. It is not enough that we run this race by a profession of Christianity, but, Henry writes, we must run well by living up to that profession. Thus, these Christians had done for a while, but they had been obstructed in their progress, and they were either turned out of the way, or at least had been made to flag and falter in it. They had been running, but but they had faltered. They had hit an obstruction that they could not get around and had taken a detour. Now, there's a point of application here for us, and it's going to be kind of a broad application that you have to work through personally. So hear this charge clearly. 
and hear it with a, a sober mind. Take note of what hinders you in your life from growing in godliness. Take note of what hinders you in your life from growing in Christ-likeness. That could be a friend. It could be a relationship. It could be recreation. You know what you and your family do for fun. It could be physical rest. It could be financial security. It could be a myriad of other things. That's just a broad sweep of things that could hinder our progress in godliness. And dear friends, when we understand that, that people, that people sent from Satan will come and put hindrances and obstacles in our paths, we must take note of that which hinders us, and we must seek to master it. We must resolve to set those things by God's grace, to take those things and set them aside, to work hard to overcome them in the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. We work, we labor, we strive, but it's the grace of God at work in us. Now, as you do that, these temptations will remain. If you have ever sought to overcome a sin in your life, you know that, especially in those initial phases of overcoming sin, that's when Satan will bring so much temptation. Dear friends, stand firm. Resist temptation. Stand firm in the grace that Christ and Christ alone can and will give. In Christ and by the Spirit, you will be victorious. In Christ and by the Spirit, you will be victorious. And we can end that sentence there. But with Scripture, we can also say that in Christ and by the Spirit, you will be victorious because in Christ and by the Spirit, you will labor, you will work, you will strive to defeat sin, and God will honor that effort. So Paul says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? And then he continues on in verse 8. He says, this persuasion did not come from him who calls you. This persuasion was in opposition to the calling of God. This is another mark and another note of the nature of false teachers. They, they are un godly. That's really what this description highlights more than anything, is that they're ungodly. The thing that they bring in does not press, does not help increase godliness in the hearers of their teaching. You know, you ask the question, how do we spot this type of persuasion? How do we look at the persuasion and say, that is false teaching, or that is good and true biblical teaching? Well, first answer is that you have the Spirit of God and you have an open Bible, and oftentimes you can spot those things pretty quickly. But there are times, there are false teachers who are very advanced in their trickery and deceit, and you must ask yourself a question. Does this action, does the teaching, does the action that results from this teaching, does it cause me to increase in godliness? That's the ultimate aim of our lives, right? To glorify God by living godly obedient lives. And so you ask yourself, does this teaching cause me to go and do things that honor the Lord? It's a simple question. There are simple answers. If you can't obey the Lord in doing something, you should not do it. And that's what Paul says. These false teachers came in and they persuaded you with things that did not come from the Lord who called you unto salvation. Calvin pointed out that that Paul kind of shifts from trying to persuade the Galatians with arguments, and he just authoritatively states that these teachers are ungodly. 
how we need that in our day at times to stand up and firmly and clearly state that some teachers are ungodly. Many and most teachers really are ungodly, but there are some who need to be clearly identified by the church, by those who are true and genuine followers of Christ. We must stand firm and stand up and identify false teachers for what they are. The Galatians were obeying the truth, but they had been hindered by this persuasion, by this ungodly persuasion. And then Paul continues on. It's kind of a progressive walk here through verses 7, 8, and 9. And verse 9, he kind of gets to the end of that and says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. What we also say is that a little leaven can contaminate the whole lump of dough. When we think about making bread, we understand that leaven is not necessarily a bad thing. You use yeast, as I understand it, I'm no baker, but you use yeast to leaven your bread, and that's what makes your bread soft and fluffy and taste good, and that's what makes it pleasant to eat. So leaven necessarily is not a bad thing. But the point of Scripture, when we see this biblical illustration, which is another common illustration in Scripture, is to understand the idea that only a small amount of leaven is needed to leaven an entire lump of dough. You just need one little sprinkle for those properties and those changes and those forms to propagate through a lump of bread dough. And so what we have to understand is that just as a little leaven will leaven a whole lump of dough, so too will a little sin, with quotes around it, or a little false teaching, again, with quotes around it, because those things are not really true. But a little sin and a little false teaching will act as leaven in the life of Christians. A little sin and a little false teaching will act as leaven in the life of the church and will quickly spread and contaminate all that it touches. Of course, that's when those things are left unchecked. That's one important thing in the life of the church. That's why we are called to be the church and to be accountable to one another because a little leaven can leaven the whole lump if it's unchecked, if there's not accountability. So we see then, kind of see that progression. You were running well. Then there was an obstruction. You were hindered. Then once you were hindered, once you slowed your pace, there came this persuasion trying to lead you away from the truth. And once that persuasion came in, it had this leavening effect. It came in and spread amongst your life. It came in and spread in the life of the church. Now, we have to be careful with illustrations. When we use illustrations, they always tend to break down. There's really no such thing as a perfect illustration, so we can't follow it too far. But I think we also have to see here that leavening takes time. Again, you think about this idea of, of bread dough. When you have yeast rolls that you want to, to cook, you have to set them out. They take them out of the refrigerator and set them out with the yeast on top of them. It takes some time for them to rise. But once that bread dough has risen, there is no reversing course. There is no changing that. Once sin and, or um, false doctrine has crept into the life of the church or the life of a believer, it takes a miraculous work of the Lord to change that course. Now, the Lord is capable of doing far more abundantly above what we could ever imagine in changing hearts and in changing lives. But we must, with sober minds, realize that the result of 
of unchecked sin, of sin that's swept under the rug, the result of false teaching that is not publicly, rightly, biblically addressed, those things act as leaven. And when leaven and, and bread dough come together, when that yeast and that bread dough come together, after they've come together, you cannot separate them. And that's what we have to understand is, is similar with sin and false teaching. So how do we avoid getting to that point where sin or false teaching comes in and, and leavens our lives or leavens the church? Well, we must avoid hindrances. We must avoid stumbling blocks. We must know that which will slow our progress, and we must seek to avoid them. We must not let anything take our eyes off of Christ. Our, our heart's chief desire must be toward Christ, to be made more like Jesus. So this is the nature and the character and the work of false teachers. They bring a blockade, a hindrance, an obstacle. They seek to persuade, to, to trick you, to pull you away from the truth, often in a deceitful manner. And then they, they seek to act as leaven. They do that work by that leavening effect where it's just a little a little false teaching, a little sin, a little bit of your life unchecked, a little bit of your life kept private and kept to you where, where only the Lord can see. And we know that those, those things happen. There are areas of our hearts that only the Lord knows. But that's what false teachers want us to do, to let sin come in and not be checked, to let false teaching go without a response. And then they are able to, to help us or to cause us to veer off course. To, to stray from the straight and narrow path. So we must acknowledge this work of evil. We must acknowledge that that's the work of Satan, and we must stand firm, and we must resist it. Now, secondly, moving to verse number 11, we'll skip over verse 10 for a few moments. Moving to verse 11, we want to look at the contradiction of false teachers. So we've seen the, the nature of false teachers. Now the contradiction of false teachers. Verse 11, but I, brethren... If I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Paul says, then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. So the contradiction of these false teachers, we see their contradiction in their constant hatred and persecution of the apostle Paul. Even when Paul preaches and advocates for circumcision, the Jews still respond with one thing, and that's hatred. They still seek to persecute him, to, to shut him up, even when he advocates the very thing that they are demanding. And you say, if you've been listening for five chapters, four and a half chapters of Galatians, you say, wait, Paul is preaching circumcision? Well, yes and, and no, okay? So think about Acts chapter 16. This is something that might be familiar. It's, it's come up a few times recently, both in sermons and in our Bible study time. Acts chapter 16, Paul is starting out on his second missionary journey. He comes to this town, and there's a young man named Timothy in this town. This young man has exhibited giftedness and godliness, and Paul says, I want to take that young man with me on this missionary journey. He will be useful to me in service to the Lord. Well, there's a problem. Paul was going to the synagogues to preach Christ to the Jews. Timothy was half Jewish. He had a Jewish mother and a Greek father, and Timothy was uncircumcised. The Jews would have never let him in the synagogues because he had not submitted to that act of the law. 
So what does Paul do? Acts 16, verse 3, says that Paul took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. Paul says, look, if that's what he needs to gain entrance into the synagogue or into your temple to be able to preach to you, then go and do what you must. Bring him into submission to that act of the law, and, and we'll march forward. We'll, we'll circumcise him, and he will come, and he will preach Christ. He will preach Christ crucified and salvation by faith alone. So yeah, in a, in a way, Paul did preach circumcision. He suggested and had Timothy circumcised so Timothy could go minister to the Jews. We also must note, though, that this was after Timothy's conversion. This was clearly not a, a need for Timothy to be saved, but it was Paul's action to help Timothy gain interest, entrance into the Jewish world. Timothy was not breaking any written, revealed law of God or Christ. He was simply submitting to an act of the law so that these people would hear him out in preaching Christ. So Paul did that. What was the response of the Jews? Well, the Jews still hated Paul. They still persecuted him. They still rejected him because ultimately they hated the gospel of Christ because the gospel of Christ did not submit to their traditions and their laws and to their, and to their rabbis and to their favored teachings. Paul says that keeping this Old Testament sign of the covenant, even so, he was still hated even though at the end of verse 11, the stumbling block of the cross had been abolished. Now, I think that statement is probably a little bit tongue-in-cheek because the stumbling block of the cross of Christ obviously was not abolished because if that stumbling block is abolished and somebody comes to Christ in saving faith. But he's saying that which they resisted, they said it can't be Christ alone, it must be Christ and circumcision. Paul says that was abolished because I'm saying if you think you need to do that, go ahead and do that, and then come to faith in Christ, faith alone in Christ. But this was really not the entire issue for the Jews. I, th I think that's what becomes clear as we think about this, is that they wanted their laws and their traditions not only to be kept, but they wanted them to be submitted to in reverence. They wanted those laws to be submitted to as chief and primary but we submit only to Christ. We preach only Christ. That was what Paul's stand was. MacArthur notes about this. He said that the early church father, Chrysostom, commented that the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews primarily because it failed to require obedience to their ancestral laws. That's why the cross was a stumbling block, because it didn't require enough for the Jews to be happy. Chrysostom continued, he said, when they attacked Stephen in Acts chapter 6, that um, they did not charge him with worshiping Christ, they charged him with speaking against the holy place and the law. So their issue, in one sense, and this is kind of a, you have to be careful in how you consider this, in one sense, the issue with the Jews was not Christ, it was that Christ came and fulfilled the Mosaic law that he nullified the rabbinic traditions that these Jews wanted to hold to as primary. To put it another way, the Jews were not looking for deference to their convictions. When we talk about convictions and those gray areas in Scripture, what, what Scripture teaches us is the idea of deference. If a brother or sister holds to conviction that you cannot identify clearly in Scripture, 
but they want to hold to it, then you would defer to them. You would not want to go and offend their conscience in their matter. But the Jews weren't looking, to, looking for deference to their convictions. They were looking to, for dependent submission to their rabbinic traditions and their old laws. That's what would suffice for them, and that, and that alone would suffice. That Paul and those Christians who preach Christ would submit only and fully to those Old Testament laws of the moral laws and ceremonial laws. That's what the Jews were after. And that's the nature of false Christians. That is the nature of false teachers is it's not enough that we try to live together in unity and harmony. And if they have a different conviction, that, that they live out that conviction and you live out your convictions as long as they are all under the umbrella of Scripture, that's not what a false teacher wants. A false teacher or a false Christian wants full submission to that which they hold dear. So we've seen the nature and the contradiction of false teachers, of false brethren. And now, thirdly, we want to consider verses 10 and verse 12 and consider the judgment of false teachers. The judgment of false teachers. Pick up verse 10 and then verse 12. Paul says, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. In verse 12, he says, I wish those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Now, before we see this judgment, let's see the great encouragement at the beginning of verse 10. Paul says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord that you will adopt no other view. I have this confidence in you because of the Lord's work in you that you will not succumb to false teaching, that you will not set your mind on those things, but you will remain firm in the truth. He's written at length about the danger and the attacks that the Galatians are facing, but now he says, I am fully confident. I have great confidence because of the Lord's grace and work in your life that you will stand firm. Think about what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1 verse 7. He said, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. He who began a good work in you will perfect it. He will keep you. He will sustain you. He will sanctify you and make you ready, make you complete in and for that day of Christ. Paul's confidence is not in the power or the goodness of men. Paul's confidence is that he serves a great and powerful God and Savior. His confidence is that the Lord will perfect and keep them. So, saints, do you hear that encouragement today? As we think about these attacks, as we think about being on guard, being sober-minded, being on the alert, do you hear that encouragement that the Lord will keep you? He will hold you fast. He will sustain you. He will bring you to the end. He will not lose any that have been given to him. You will persevere in the faith, not because of your own strength and goodness, but because you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in believers as, our, as the guarantee of our inheritance. He is the seal that makes us sure of the promise of God to keep us unto salvation. So I hope you hear that promise and you take great comfort and great joy and great encouragement knowing that the Lord will keep you. 
But there's a flip side to that coin, and we can stay in Philippians to see that. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, not that I've already obtained it, not that I've already become perfect, but I press on. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we must hold both sides of that coin, right? That it is God who keeps us. It is God who is at will and at work in us. But, dear friends, we press on. We press on toward the prize. So before we consider this judgment of false teachers, hear that encouragement to those who are true believers, that you are kept by God, and it is the grace of God that even causes you to desire to press on. So now let's, let's move on from that encouragement and consider the judgment that Paul writes of, the judgment that he writes of in the second half of verse 10. He says, the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. Whether he is a person of high standing or of low standing, the Lord sees, the Lord knows, and he will bear his judgment. Peter writes of judgment to false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, he says that the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under judgment, under their punishment, under their constriction, until he is ready to punish them eternally for their attacks on the bride and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself spoke of the danger of false teachers and the judgment that would come to them in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, the first two verses It's written there that Jesus said, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But, Jesus said, But woe to him through whom they come. Woe to him through whom they come. And Jesus says what, what should happen to them, what would be better for them. He says it would be better for that person if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. That was Jesus Christ in the flesh, and that is his judgment on false teaching. He says, before you go and propagate falsehood, it would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown to sink to the bottom of the sea. You would rather face that than face the judgment of the Lord. Listen to John Calvin on this, his commentary on these verses. Calvin says, let all who introduce confusion into churches... All who break the unity of faith, who destroy the harmony of the Lord's churches, let them lend an ear to this. If they have any right feeling, let them tremble, Calvin says, at this word. God declares here by the mouth of Paul that none through whom such offenses come will pass unpunished. Any who come and attack the unity of the Lord's church will not go unpunished. That is a clear statement from Scripture. Those who attack, those who malign, those who divide, and those who mislead the church, 
Again, the church is the bride of Christ, the, the bride whom Christ died for. He shed his own blood for the sake of purchasing a bride for himself. And those who attack and malign and divide the church, they will not go unpunished. And friends, in this day and age, that's an encouragement. As much as, as we are not God and we have to take great care in the, the righteous anger that we may feel, that's encouraging to know that those who are false will face the judgment of the Lord. As, as we are maligned as Christians, as we are maligned as those who stand and hold to the truth, those who propagate another gospel, as Paul said at the beginning, beginning of Galatians, they will be accursed. They will be condemned. They will not go unpunished. Now, friends, if, if we have a right and proper love, that should be encouragement, but it should also drive us to prayer, prayer that the Lord would break those people over their sin, bring them to faith and repentance and salvation. So that's the judgment of the Lord on these people. And then verse 12, we can move down. If that were not severe enough, we can kind of consider Paul's own personal Holy Spirit-inspired judgment on these people. Paul says, I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. And this is obviously a strong and a severe and a very graphic statement by Paul. Not going to go into the, the gory details here, but we can understand in light of the ongoing debate of circumcision exactly what Paul is getting at in this verse. The Greek term mutilate means exactly what you probably think it means. It means to amputate or to cut off, and so we'll leave that there. This is a severe statement by Paul. Paul is, is not giving a, a light-hearted, um, winsome statement about false teachers. Again, this is Spirit-inspired. This is from the Holy Spirit of God, through the pen, through the mouth of the Apostle Paul. So there are some minorly varied interpretations as to exactly what this judgment illustrates. The, the illustration is clear. What Paul is saying is clear. But what exactly he's getting to, there are some slightly different takes, but I think it becomes real clear if we really consider the context. Galatians 5 verse 4, just a few verses before this, Paul says, you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have been severed. You have been cut off. That is what Paul is getting to. It's as though he's saying, False teachers might as well finish the deed. If you are holding to some portion of the law, go ahead and cut yourself off entirely from the idea of grace in Christ. Don't hold to this deceitful, false, wicked view that you can join together faith and works. Just cut yourself off entirely. Depend on your works, and then you can strive as hard as you want. You will fail. You will end up condemned, but you might as well go ahead and cut yourself off from Christ entirely. So we ask the question, I think, in light of this, why, why such a strong statement from Paul on judgment? In verse 12 and verse 10, why, why such strong judgment on false teachers? And I think the answer is real clear. It's because the Lord has an immeasurably high and perfect standard for his people, his people being the church. Now, you don't have to turn here, but Deuteronomy 23 is a very interesting and helpful cross-reference 
to um, this idea, especially of verse 12, of this judgment and the Lord's protection upon the assembly and the gathering of his people. Um, the Lord in Deuteronomy 23 is laying forth the external, the outward requirements of those who can enter the assembly of the people of God. Verse 23, the Lord begins, or verse 1 of chapter 23, the Lord begins there. He says, No one who is emasculated shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So why is Paul so severe in Galatians chapter 5? It's because the Lord is severe in his protection of the church. The Lord is severe in his protection of the church. So Deuteronomy 23 lists several different things that, that put someone outside the camp of the church within the assembly of the people of God. Paul says that those who are propagating a false gospel, those who are false teachers, should go ahead and mutilate themselves, and the mutilated man cannot enter into the assembly of the people of God. That's the judgment against false teachers. They cannot be among the people of God. They cannot be among us because the bride of Christ must be pure. The bride of Christ is pure. Christ has covered us. Christ has washed us. Christ has cleansed us. And, and our duty then as his people is to ensure that his church in the local assembly of the church, that we remain pure. We do not accept outward defilements. Eternal souls are at stake in our battle against falsehood. If we let a false gospel come in and and instruct our lives or instruct our gospel proclamation, we are hindering eternal souls that the Lord would save. Now again, the Lord is sovereign over salvation. We, we understand that. We know that it's not by our proclamation, but by the grace of God that a soul comes to faith. But we also understand that the Lord uses means and instruments to bring people to faith. And there are eternal souls at stake in our battle against falsehood. So we must deal strongly with falsehood, with false teachers, with false believers as the people of God. So now in conclusion, in summary, we see that those who hinder, those who wrongly persuade, those who infiltrate and disturb, and those who persecute God's people will face a strict judgment. Take heart in that, Christian, that you are not fighting a losing battle. We are overcomers because Christ overcame. The truth will overcome. The truth will win. So we must resist the false ways of evildoers. We must be resolved to stand firm against falsehood. We must stand firm in running our race. We must run well by submitting our lives to the truth. We must run well by running with a purpose. You don't run without a purpose. You don't run without fixing your eyes upon the finish line. So look to Christ, look to our Savior and be freed of the ways of the world, and then you will be able to persevere. If you are driven to despair by the struggles and the trials and the hardships around you, you will struggle in your race. Look to Christ. Christ, fix your eyes upon the Savior. 
We must press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We must press on. We must lay aside, as Hebrews 12 says, we must lay aside every encumbrance. We must lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us, and we must run with endurance the race that is set before us, and we do that by fixing our eyes upon Christ. We must, as Hebrews 12 goes on to say, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's a holiness that's built up and brought to fruition by God's grace in our lives, but we must strive after that. We must pursue that with the grace of God working in and through us. We strive in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, dear friends, may we keep running well. As we go from here, may we keep running well by God's grace for the sake of the purity of the church so that the gospel can be proclaimed, so that souls may be rescued from the path to hell, and that the name of the Lord be glorified among his people. Let's close in prayer.